Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Simon Garnier. He's an Associate Professor of Biology at New the New Jersey Institute of Technology. He's the head of the SWARM Lab, an interdisciplinary research lab that studies the mechanisms underlying collective behaviors and SWARM intelligence in natural and artificial systems. His research aims to reveal the detailed functioning of collective intelligence in systems as diverse as ant colonies, human crowds, and robotic swarms. So, Dr. Garnier, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me. So, just start perhaps with a general definition or to have a general sense of what we're going to talk about here today. What is swarm intelligence? Oh, um, so essentially it's, um, it's the idea that um, you take a bunch of simplified units, things of like ants, which by themselves are not particularly capable of much, but uh, when you put them together and you have them coordinate their activity and cooperate, they're capable together of achieving things that are much greater than what any of the individuals in the groups could do by themselves. So that's the, the general idea of uh, swarm intelligence. And it comes with also the, the idea that there's nobody necessarily in charge inside the group. So nobody is organizing the colony. The colony is self-organizing um, from the interactions that, is, that are happening between the different individuals in the colony. So that's the general gist of it. Mm -hmm. Are there any set of principles that drive swarm intelligence? Yeah, so the sort of central theory behind the idea of swarm intelligence is that theory of self-organization, which, which is this idea that you don't need to have anyone in charge. You don't need to plan anything ahead of time. You can actually create organization and, and solve problem uh, collectively uh, simply through um, um, the interaction that are created between the individuals. So nobody necessarily is in charge, but everybody reacts to their local environment, reacts to what's happening around them. And if these uh, interactions are properly set, um, that's going to create a global organization at the level of the group. Uh, so that's the general theory behind swarm intelligence. Mm -hmm. Does the intelligence of the individuals who compose the swarm matter? I mean, it, it does, right, uh, to some extent, because each individual, you can see it as a, as a, you know, unit of information processing, a little bit like the neurons in your brain, right? Each neuron by itself is capable of some uh, processing. Um, but what, where the intelligence, the, the, the swarm intelligence appears is when all of these units start to connect with each other. Because then the information is not simply treated at the level of the individual, it starts to be propagating inside the system and it will uh, give rise to greater level of cognitive processing uh, outside of the individual. So to some extent it matters because each individual will process some of that information. But what makes that processing really valuable is through the interaction with others because then information can propagate and be treated in parallel by multiple units at the same time. Mm -hmm. Could you give us some examples of biological systems of swarm intelligence? Sure. I mean, probably the most uh, 
studied one or the one that studied it all, if you want, um, is that behavior that I don't know how much you know about ants, but a lot of ant species, um, you know, the colony needs to get food. The workers go out of the nest, look for food sources, and then if they find someone finds a, a, a food source, it will go back to one, its nest and lay behind it a, a trail of pheromones. So pheromone is like a chemical substance that you lay in the environment. Um, and that trail of pheromone will um, stimulate other workers to go outside the nest, but also guide them back toward uh, the food source. These workers, in turn, in turn, once they have found the food source, when they come back to uh, the nest, if they like the food source, they lay more pheromone, they reinforce the signal, which drives even more workers to come out of the nest go explore the food source and then in turn reinforce that information. And if the food source is of really good quality in comparison to other food sources available in the environment, through that reinforcement of the signal, that collective reinforcement of the signals, it end up being selected as the main uh, food source that the colony is exploiting and the other food sources that are poor quality in the environment are abandoned. So it's a very simple mechanism where you're just reinforcing information that uh, oh, you're reinforcing signal that you like um, that encourage other individuals to go check out the source of that signal and they, they like it, they reinforce uh, the signal themselves, which encourages more individuals. And then little by little, the colony ends up selecting in the environment the best of the food sources. And yeah, that's uh, one example. Uh, very simple when nobody is really in charge, everybody is just giving their opinion, if you want, about the quality of uh, a particular sources of uh, food in the environment. Um, but through that collective interaction and collective activity, um, the colony manages to select the best of all the food sources in the environment. Mm -hmm. Does the same happen in human societies? Yeah, I mean, essentially, every time you have a recommendation system, like uh, you go on Amazon to buy a new laptop, let's say, uh, people who have bought that laptop before may have come back and they could have left positive or negative reviews about the laptop and that's going to influence your opinion about whether you should buy or not buy that laptop. Uh, and the laptops where there is more positive reviews will end up attracting more customers. Uh, and then um, the, the customers as a whole population, if you want, will end up collectively selecting which might be the best laptop to buy right now. Uh, that makes sense. So it's exactly the same principle. It's just your, you have a social signal in the environment that encodes some information about what other people have thought of the quality of a particular object. And um, by attracting you to that object, and if you like it, you also put your own signal out um, that may uh, encourage other people to buy that same product. And collectively, as a, as a society, we select uh, the product we think are the best. I'm not saying we always do it right, but the idea is that is uh, in this kind of scenarios, you will select the technology that people like the best, um, or the one that pe has improved the life of people the best uh, mm -hmm. with this recommending system. Mm -hmm. So what is collective decision-making? Well, that's a good question. The first question is, uh, what is decision making, right? Yeah. Um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a really a complicated question. Because um, when you observe uh, 
in my job, right? I, I study animal behavior. I, I can't ask the animal, have you made a decision? Have you made a choice here? Um, all I can see is whether the animal or the group of animals has gone to a particular place more often than not. So decision making in our case is really that is do the group of animal, the group of object that we're looking at, does that group ends up more often than chance at a particular place. And so that's a very, very vague, but it's a very actionable definition of decision making. And collective decision making is just um, uh, applying that process to groups, right? That, that concept to group. The idea is that uh, each individual in the group may have some opinion about the choice between two options, let's say, in the simplest case. And um, some of the group will maybe prefer option A, some of the group will maybe prefer option B. But uh, because of these interactions between the individuals, individuals that prefer A may be able to attract some of the individuals that prefer B toward their side, if you want, uh, because the group wants to stick together. And so through that mechanisms of interaction inside the group, most of the individual end up at one option, even though sometimes it's not their originally preferred option. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if any of the examples you've given us correspond to this sort of phenomenon, phenomenon, but what is aggregation behavior and how does it contribute to collective decision making? So, I mean, aggregation behavior, it's simply the idea that uh, the agents that you're looking at, the animals you're looking at, uh, tend to cluster in the environment. Um, and usually you measure that by looking at whether distribution of the object in the environments or the animals in the environment is more clustered than what you expect by random chance. Okay. Uh, now, the reason why aggregation is so important, the reason why you, you, you need the organisms of the object to come close to each other is because it facilitates the exchange of information. And collective intelligence and swarm intelligence require that uh, the organism interact with each other. And so the more aggregated they are, mm -hmm. uh, the better they'll be at transferring information between each other, the better they'll be at collectively processing that information. And therefore, uh, the more likely you see emergent processes appear and things like collective decision making, etc. If the if the organisms are too dispersed in the environment and don't interact with each other, then there's no collective intelligence possible. Again, if I take the example of your brain, right? If I take all the neurons and I just separate them, I have like your, you know, 90 billion something neurons and I just separate them and they don't interact with each other, then there's no more intelligence. Uh, you need to have them close enough to each other so that they can talk to each other if you want. Uh, in order for the information to be transferred and processed by the group. Mm -hmm. When it comes to biological systems, are any of the kinds of behavior that contribute to collective decision making heritable? Or is it just the organism responding to, I don't know, perhaps the behavior of other individuals of that particular society to some ecological conditions or factors or I mean how, how does it work exactly so it's a I guess it's a complicated question right because you when we talk about irritability the further away you are from the genes right so collective behavior is is very far away from the genes in terms of like levels of observation right and so it becomes increasingly complicated to statistically demonstrate that 
a collective behavior is encoded in a set of genes that is mm -hmm. then passed on to the next generation. However, um, these collective behaviors are the product of the individual behaviors and interaction between the individuals and the way individuals react to these interactions, right? So a lot of these individual behavior, you can trace back their genetic origins. Um, like, for instance, simple things like how sensitive an organism might be to this, you know, this pheromone we're talking about, how capable they are of uh, smelling them and detecting them in the environment. This is something that's going to have to, that's going to be linked to their genetic under, underpinnings. So the way we usually think about this is not necessarily that the collective behavior is irritable per se, but the way the individual react to each other and, and process uh, information that they detect in the environment has an irritable component. And as long as you, you if you want, keep these, um, um, uh, pass on these behaviors, this individual behavior to the next generation, then the emergent collective behavior is going to be mechanically present as well, if that makes sense. So you can't really trace back collective behavior to a particular set of genes, but because it's an emergent behavior from the individual behavior, from the individual behaviors, because the individual behaviors to some extent are based on, you know, physiological and neurophysiological processes that are irritable, mechanically, if you want, these emergent layers will exist in the next generation mm -hmm. uh, because the, uh, the underlying layers are irritable. Mm -hmm. I understand. So uh, as far as I know, sometimes we find similarities between, at least in certain features, between, for example, human architecture and constructions made by eusocial insects, like, for example, certain species of ant. Uh, how do we make sense of that from a biological perspective? I mean, ants and humans, right, we all, uh, that the thing that makes us similar is that we are very social. We, uh, we are highly influenced by the behaviors of others around us. Uh, we cooperate uh, with individuals around us. Uh, and so because, because of that um, highly social structure, you will find similarities in the collective behaviors of these different species. Um, now, this being said, right, I'm not saying the ants are behaving like the humans and humans behaving like the ants. We both have like different constraints and different abilities to modify our environment, also different abilities to sort of isolate ourselves, if you want, from the social world. Like human beings, we have, we are less social, if you want, we're less socially dependent on others. Uh, we can, we can do things on our own um, from time to time, at least, while ants are more like, the, the survival of the end colony depends on everybody uh, working together. Um, but because again, because we have all that tendency of being influenced by the behavior of others, um, you will find in both systems these mechanisms of information propagation inside the group. And in some cases, this mechanism will lead to exactly the same type of result. So the same way the ants use pheromone to attract other ants toward food sources and then use that um, social information to select the best food source in the environment, we use uh, social information to guide also our individual choices. And um, if the system of recommendation is properly set up, 
um, the group will also be able to select the best product. So this is the same principles we apply to two different species, but it will lead to the same result, which is the, the appearance of a collective selection of a particular product or particular food source. Mm -hmm. So yes, there will be there will be parallel just because we work, uh, we are social, and therefore anything that is transmitted through social um, means is going to potentially have the same effect in both uh, populations. Right. So uh, you've been using the word or the term information. Could you explain a little bit better what oh. is information from an evolutionary perspective? Oh, oh well, you, do you have just an hour to talk about that? <laughs> no, information is a, I mean, it's a complicated um, concept. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher of uh, information theory, so I, I don't, I won't pretend that I, uh, I can give you a good definition of information, but in its, I guess, simplest form, we, when we're talking about information is we, we, it's not something you can see, but you can see the result of it. And so when, when we talk about information and you see two objects and there is a signal, so for instance, a pheromone, my voice coming toward you, et cetera, that goes from one object to the other, and that signal modifies the behavior of the second object. Then we, we make this, this uh, sort of like mental leap that that signal was carrying information because that signal was capable of modifying the behavior of another object. And so that's what we, when, when I call about, when I talk about information, that's what I call, I, I talk about a signal that went from one individual to another and that modified the behavior of the, the receiver object, if you want. Mm -hmm. So it's a, uh, I forgot, uh, it's a, someone had a really good definition. It's a, uh, a difference that makes a difference. <laughs> Right. So. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I understand. So I, I mean, but talking again about collective decision making, because uh, earlier I've asked you about examples of biological systems where we find uh, swarm intelligence. Um, I mean, are there particular aspects of a species sociality that have to be set in place for it to be able to have collective decision making? Um, so, I mean, I guess there's two things, right? The first thing is um, every time you're going to be putting a bunch of objects that can interact with each other, exchange information, influence each other, you put these objects together you'll have some emergent properties appearing out of it. Now, the question is whether these emergent properties are capable of solving a problem for the object. Mm -hmm. Or in my case, as a biologist, uh, will allow them to increase their fitness, right? So will, will these emergent properties make it that uh, the individuals inside the groups are more likely to pass on their gene to the next generation? Um, and so when we talk about, I mean, if you go back to the problem of collective decision making, right, the, the question is whether by interacting with each other, the group is going to be more capable of identifying in the environment uh, resources that will allow them to increase their fitness. And by fitness, it can be anything. If we talk about humans, we're not necessarily taking, talking about genetic fitness or like next generation kind of things, but increase our ability as a society to, I don't know, improve our wealth or improve the well-being of our uh, of our societies um, so 
Now, this being said, as I said, if you put things together and they can interact, something is going to happen. No, what you are what you're asking me, I think, is is uh, is are there like particular um, features you need to have so that these emergent properties benefit the group? And the question is, I mean, it's uh, it's yes and no. Essentially, as soon as you have the possibility of interacting, you have everything you need to be able to do uh, collective decision making or any form of collective behavior. The thing is. Um, what matters is how the interaction and the way you react to interactions are uh, tuned, uh, evolutionary speaking, so that it gives you the best result. Right. So, as I said, you put a bunch of objects that can interact with each other, you get emergent properties. But these emergent properties, most of the time, if you don't like carefully uh, control how you react with this interaction, 99% of the time, it leads to catastrophic results. Uh, and, and so what evolution is doing is, is tuning these, the way we react, how much we react to social information, how often do we rely on social information versus the information that we have gathered ourselves, how much do we pass on some of our social information. And so what matters is not necessarily the fact that we can pass on social information, is, is how much do we pass, it, we pass it on, how much do we react to information we receive, and, and how do we react to it, right? Um, so. The answer to your question is it's going to depend on what the problem is and what you're trying to solve. But the answer is going to be also it will require some form of regulation mechanism or something that will make sure that the individuals don't overreact or underreact mm -hmm. uh, to the information that they're receiving. I mean, the case of overreaction, I mean, we see this every day in our social media. Uh, you put out a uh, fake piece of information, but that's very attractive. Uh, visually, for instance, or that reinforce your own beliefs, and then you're going to be likely to share it uh, and react strongly to it. And people who, who agree with your beliefs are going to react to it strongly and share it, etc. Even though that might be a completely wrong piece of information. Um, and so the problem here in these social systems, in this this uh, social media, is that we have not evolved, if you want, or we have not created yet the mechanism that allow us to uh, regulate our response to that kind of information. Like I get information, it creates a lot of emotions in me because it agrees with my beliefs, for instance, so it's very emotional. There's no mechanism that prevents me from immediately sharing it and then propagating that false information. Well, if you look at biological systems that have evolved to function properly collectively, um, they, they have this mechanism in which, okay, if I receive an information from a social information that is contradicting some facts that I have gathered in the independently, there is mechanisms inside this organism to sort of balance how much do I trust the information I've gathered firsthand versus I trust information that I receive from other individuals. And that balance is very important because otherwise, when that balance is broken, that's when the system goes from like everything works well, we make the best optimal decision to we all end up running into a wall together. Um, so the answer, I guess, is that is you need interactions, pass the passing on social information, and you need mechanism that allow you to regulate your, res your response to this social information. Mm -hmm. What about something like social cohesion? And I mean, what does that mean here exactly? 
I mean, whatever you want, I guess. Um, <laughs> so there, there is one thing is a lot of these um, mechanism of collective decision making in swarm systems are based on on uh, mechanism that reduce, if you want, the diversity of opinion that will make everyone align and, 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 and reach a consensus on a particular option. Now, this is really good. Like if you're trying to search for the best food source in your environment or the best laptop on uh, on Amazon, uh, it's a really good mechanism because you want you want to have a system that can converge toward the best option and everybody aligns and, and, and agrees that in the end it's the best option and we should exploit that. The problem is when um, the objective benefit of um, the 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 opinion that you you all agree on is is not clear. So when we talk about things like ethical problem, right? An ethical problem, an ethical issue um, doesn't necessarily have a clear benefit. Like I get more food or I get a better laptop, um, and in the end, you end up with a bunch of different opinions, which is fine, that are on one side or another of the ethical question and that are more or less close to the middle ground or more far, further away. But because of this same mechanism that allow us to converge toward, let's say, buying the best laptop or the be getting the best food source, if we, if we have the same thing that has us converge toward uh, opinions related to ethical problem or moral questions that don't have an objective value in the end, you may end up picking something that uh, you may end up essentially having uh, reduced completely the diversity of opinion on the problem and get locked into cultural and moral uh, um, uh, situations that becomes very hard to get out. And, and that is a problem. I mean, it's something called groupthink. You may have uh, read about this, but there's just this idea that we, we're reducing, we, we're just narrowing, everybody narrows their opinion toward one particular specific opinion, which is good if that opinion is about something that has an objective value, but can be problematic when we're talking about moral values or ethical values, which may, you know, change with the history and, and around the course of time. And then when we're locked in these opinions, it becomes very hard to get out of it. And it's, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, I was going to ask you, is decision making possible without a brain? Oh, well, again, yes, it depends on how you define, as I said, it depends how you define decision making. And um, the type of, you know, practical definition that we use, which is about, we observe uh, an object, an agent, and we are trying to figure out if that agent, if you give it the choice between two options, does it, does it end up at one option more often than chance, uh, which is the best we can do in the lab, right? In the, in the experimental context, that's the best you can do when you can't talk to the organism. But then you, you'll see that uh, any organism on the planet um, will make, quote, decisions uh, under that definition. So you can take a bacteria, you can take a slime mold, you can take a plant, um, you, you, you see that the, the move, their movement or their location uh, over time is not uh, changing randomly. And, and even if the environment is fixed, right, the environment is necessarily pushing the organism left or right, some of the physical uh, processes through the action of the organism, 
it ends up at a place and if you were to repeat the experiment again and again and again and again, it would end up at that place more often than by chance. And so, yes, uh, we, under that definition, you can have decision making without a brain because bacteria can do that, plant can do that. Um, pretty much any organism that has sensors and an ability to move or change its configuration will be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, since you're even mentioning bacteria, for example, uh, I asked you about the brain, but uh, an organism doesn't even need to have a nervous system for it to make make decisions, correct? No, no, because I mean the way the way I, I see the prime of decisions, right? It's a question of you you get information from the environment, you process that information, and the result of that processing changes your behavior, right? You And so any organism that has a mechanism by which it can process information will be able, if it's tuned properly by evolution, uh, to choose more often than not the best option, for instance. And if you look at a bacteria, a bacteria has uh, sensors at the surface of a cell, right? A lot of molecules that are capable of binding to molecules that they find in the environment. These molecules, uh, these receptors, will connect to processes inside the cell that we create cascades of biochemical reaction that will change, for instance, the production of certain protein or the expression of certain genes. And by changing this, changes the behavior, so the, the, the behavior of the, the, the bacteria itself. So inside each cell, there is a lot of mechanism that allow to transform an information into an action. And if that process of processing that, that information processing system through evolution more consistently manages to change the behavior of an organism so that it benefits or it, it gets away from dangers or benefit and go toward a, a better environment um, then yes you have a mechanism of decision making that didn't rely on neurons and having a brain mm -hmm. Does that tell us anything about embodied cognition, for example? Um, I mean, I guess the question is, uh, is there, I don't know of any example of non-embodied cognition. So if you can find me an example, maybe we can discuss that. I don't know if it tells us anything about it because I don't know what not embodied connection, cognition would look like. Um, because from a, at our point of view, there's we 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 there's no way to determine that an organism or system has perform any form of cognitive task without seeing an output. And therefore, if you have an output into the real world, you need to have a body or something that is going to act on the environment. So it has to be embodied because if it's not embodied, you never see the output, and therefore you can never know if there is cognition in that system. Right, if I give you a black box, there may be very complicated circuitry in there that can process information. Uh, but if you never see the output of that processing, then you don't know that it has existed. And so I don't think, I mean, it's a nice philosophical uh, thought. There's a black box somewhere that may be thinking and maybe receiving inputs, but never produces output. But then from our point of view, that black box is you can't say if it's cognitive or not cognitive because you can't observe the, its action on the world. Mm -hmm. 
When it comes to human societies, particularly, uh, how do human crowds produce collective intelligence? In the same way any other uh, collective system does, right? I mean, I guess yes and no. Uh, so you will have you you will have that form of swarm intelligence that we discussed, which is that decentralized, unplanned form of uh, collective behavior. Uh, and this will exist again. That will exist in any system where you have enough objects that can interact often enough with each other and react to each other often enough. Uh, and then, in some cases, as I said, it will work very nicely. Um, again, the example of recommender system is an example of that swarm intelligence in humans that works very well most of the time. Um, in some cases, it will go catastrophically. Uh, traffic jam on the turnpike here in New Jersey is a result of self-organization gone wrong. So it's a form of collective stupidity, if you want, or swarm stupidity. Um, but collective intelligence is a, a larger umbrella than swarm intelligence. Swarm intelligence is collective intelligence that is done in a decentralized, unplanned way. Uh, collective intelligence in the literature, essentially, people will define this as simply the fact that by working together, individuals or the, the group achieves something that is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, and, and that can be achieved through mechanisms that are completely centralized. So that can be, you know, most companies in the world have a hierarchical structure that allow to organize the work, distribute the tasks, optimize the distribution of tasks in a way that is maybe more rigid, but also uh, more efficient and more reactive. Um, and so that's a form of collective intelligence because the company can produce things that any single individual on their own will not be able to do because that will be too complicated. Uh, so that's a form of collective intelligence, but it's not a form of swarm intelligence because everything is planned and, and structured hierarchically. I don't know if that makes sense. But, mm -hmm. uh, yes, it does. But do we see the same kind of phenomena in artificial intelligent systems? So you, you need to be a bit more precise on your question here. That's oh, okay. The uh, things like uh, collective intelligence, uh, swarm oh. intelligence. I mean, there is an entire field of so the swarm intelligence. The field is actually mostly an applied field, uh, with uh, people having developed algorithm for optimization, for instance, using you know taking inspiration of how the ants find, for instance, find food sources to optimize path. Uh, on uh, the path that information takes on communication network, or uh, how we should route the planes or trucks that are transporting merchandises. Uh, so that's one part of swarm intelligence, which is trying to use what we learn from uh, this natural swarm system to create optimization algorithms for these complex questions where lots of moving parts are. Uh, uh, interacting with each other and, and we don't necessarily have time to plan optimally exactly what's going to happen because there's also a lot of unknown in the system. Uh, and then there is another big part which is swarm robotics, which is trying to bring these to uh, to bring these algorithms, this optimization algorithm uh, to robots that can act in the real world. And that will be capable of working together and cooperating to achieve a greater outcome together. Um, so robotics is it's one of these um, disciplines where it's start, it started like a long time ago, 
um, like sometimes in the 90s, uh, early 90s. And it hasn't yet come up really um, in an applied form in the real world because there hasn't been a situation um, where it was needed. But there's like something that's going to become necessary. Like when we have all these autonomous cars on the on the road, autonomous cars essentially a, a robot. Um, if you want to be able to use that to actually improve things like traffic on the roads and and reduce the you know pollutions by trying to optimize where the cars are going to limit to reduce the amount of uh, gas or electricity that they use, uh, you won't be able to do this with a centralized system that optimizes the path of every car individually at the scale of an entire city or your country. And so there will be some application there where these like swarm systems, the systems that are capable purely uh, autonomously in a completely distributed fashion to optimize their, their behavior um, will probably have a lot of application in that field. Uh, and there is also applications that are being developed in the real world, for instance, in, uh, in warehouses. We're talking about Amazon, but other places do that, where they have fleets of robots that go and essentially pick up products um, they go inside the warehouses and then they will grab the shelves that contain the product to bring them to the workers that are packaging them. And um, part of the way these robots are, are performing their tasks is in a, in a, also in a form of decentralized way where they, um, they react to what's happening and then as a collective optimize their actions in an autonomous fashion without the need for necessarily having a central computer that is guiding every single action. Um, because if we had that, any problem that happened in the system, then the, the, the problem propagates uh, if you try to fix it yourself, right? You know, it's like the you try to fix this and then that breaks that. And so now you try to fix that, but then that breaks another thing, etc. But with a system that is decentralized, something breaks here, the rest of the system can act without having to wait for that part to be fixed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there are application in, uh, in, in the warehouse world and there will be application in the autonomous car uh, industry of this uh, swarm of egg stuff. Mm -hmm. Can we learn about natural intelligence and natural decision making by studying robot behavior? Um, it's a good question. Um, Historically speaking, right, most of what's been done in robotics and swarm robotics is taking inspiration from a natural system, bringing this principle to um, to an engineer uh, system in order to solve a human-specific problem, right? Um, so historically, right, the, uh, the the flow of information or the flow of knowledge has been Getting yeah, going from nature to applications, uh, but not necessarily the other way around. Mm -hmm. Now this being said, in the process of transferring that information to the engineering side, uh, you have to make abstractions. So you have to start developing models and abstraction because then you you can use this abstraction to optimize the behavior of your robots, for instance, uh, so that they uh, they do what you want. But we can also use these abstractions these models and then and then turn them back toward nature to figure out in that space of optimal possibilities that we can get out of these models where do the, the natural system fit 
Um, and uh, and so even though it's not always it's not the natural flow of knowledge to go back to world uh, biology, the tools that are developed by engineers in the process of transforming that biological knowledge into engineering knowledge, uh, we can reuse them and we reuse them uh, very frequently um, in the form of this abstraction that allow us to explore the realm of possibilities that this form system can reach, determine, for instance, where they will behave optimally for achieving particular tasks, and then determine whether the biological system fits within this optimal um, configuration of the parameters or whether they actually are off uh, these optimal parameters. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but so we don't necessarily learn anything by looking at the robots, but the tools that are developed to get to the robots are extremely helpful for us to understand better our biological systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to humans, particularly with the kind of research that you do, do you think that it allows us for allow for us to have a better understanding of how human societies get organized? Yes, I mean, as I said, right, you will have uh, in human societies swarm intelligent processes at work, and then you will have also these other form of collective intelligence, more organized, planned. Uh, and this is not the purpose of swarm intelligence. We don't look at these organized and planned systems. But what's interesting is, um, uh, you know, it's called swarm intelligence because people are looking at this to, uh, to get uh, intelligent solution to problem. But when you, when, you, when you apply the same tools to human societies, in a lot of cases, you realize that a lot of the societal problems that we have, I, I talked about traffic jams and, and flow of fake informations and, and on, on social networks. Um, these are problems that are caused by the same principle that make an end colony being able to optimally forage in its environment. So we have the same principle, but because the, the parameters are, or the, the way we react to this information is not, um, as an evolved, if you want, to, uh, to, to mitigate the negative consequences of these, uh, I mean, if you want, you know, traffic jams are a problem, it's a modern problem. There was no traffic jam in the 1800s because there was not enough, there was no car and there was not enough traffic on the roads to create traffic jams um, that became a, a economic problem for our societies. Um, so we only had a hundred years to adjust to that, if you want, and and we haven't changed our behavior that much in that meantime. Um, so what's interesting is when we we transfer, when we look at uh, human societies through the lens of swarm intelligence, we actually are. It's very useful to actually identify what are the root causes of some of these, you know, mass problems that we uh, that we create in our societies because we are uh, jam-packed with each other into cities uh, and haven't yet I mean it's probably in the process of happening like culturally we're changing and our behaviors are changing but we haven't yet found the right way of, of smoothing out all these interactions so that problem like traffic jam fake information mass panic uh, do not uh, do not spread but we can use the same tools as we use to study animals to realize where humans are in this, you know, realm of optimal possibilities and to see that sometimes we are like very far from uh, from how we should organize ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
So, just to talk about a concrete example, I know you've studied uh, human crowd motion. I mean, uh, it is mainly driven by self-organized processes based on local interactions among pedestrians, right? I mean, could you explain that? Yeah, so, so the funny thing is uh, pedestrian actually crowds are fairly, op are fairly efficient. Uh, very, very efficient, actually. Uh, but we can talk about this. But yeah, in uh, in human crowds, right, like when you walk in a very busy street, uh, you have an objective, right? So you're trying to get somewhere. Um, and that's, you plan this in your head. Like, I need to go from A to B, I have a path. But along along that path, you bump into obstacles, whether they are like object in the streets or other people walking toward you. And um, when there are other people walking toward you, we have developed social conventions on how to avoid people. I mean, you uh, live in continental Europe, and so most of the time, if you go in the street, if you if you tr observe how people avoid you when you walk in the street, you realize that most of the time they are going to pass you on your left side, and you are going to step aside or move a little bit toward your right side to avoid them. And this social convention actually uh, have an effect that it fluidifies the traffic because it ends up creating lines, separate lines of movement with individuals moving in one direction, being on one side of the sidewalk or the, the road and the other people being on the other side. And that limits the uh, head on collisions between individuals. So the need to slow down to avoid collision and that fluidifies the traffic. So that's an example of actually where it works pretty well, uh, where we have developed the social conventions uh, that allow us to fluidify our uh, interactions. Um, but then you take the same individuals and then you put them in a car and where well, there's no almost no head on collision, right? Most most roads you're moving, you never go, you never have to avoid a car coming in front of you. So you're literally going in the same direction as everyone. But because everyone doesn't want to go at the same speed, uh, everyone doesn't want necessarily to follow the rules exactly of traffic, etc. That creates perturbation that then cascades throughout the system. Um, and and, uh, and 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 then generate uh, traffic jam at some point. I mean, the, you may have heard of the, the the phantom traffic jam effect, which so it's very simple. Right? You have a, you have cars going on the road, and then you have a car that goes slightly slower than the car behind it. The car behind to avoid collision is going to have to slow down to avoid collision, but it's going to slow down a little more. So the speed of that car coming behind is going to have to reduce a little more than the car it's trying to avoid collision with, which means that this car now is going a little slower than the car in front of it, which means if there's another car coming, it will have to slow down and be a little slower than the car in front of it, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, you propagate that, if you have enough cars following each other, you propagate that over this length of the car, at some point, someone is going to be stopped. Mm -hmm. So even though everybody is free to move, because we just react by slowing down just a little bit more, if you propagate that enough, at some point someone is stopped and the traffic jam starts beyond that. Um, that doesn't happen easily in human, in pedestrian crowds, unless you reach extreme, extreme densities. But like densities at which like people are literally packed against each other, in which case you, physics takes over and it's nothing to do with, uh, with behavior anymore. Mm -hmm. But in cars, we are, I don't know. We have that suboptimal way of reacting and, and adjusting our speed to the person in front of us that makes it that it propagates backward and then some somewhere along the road someone is going to stop and a traffic jam is going to form behind. Mm -hmm. 
So, just one last question. Uh, do, do the kind of phenomena, does the kind of phenomena that you study in human societies allow for us to, or would allow for us to have a better understanding of some more uh, major uh, things, like, for example, how political systems develop, or even to have a better understanding of what human culture is and how it develops and evolves? I mean, some more major things like that. Yeah, so the answer is, is yes, to some extent, right? Uh, human societies are part swarms and part hierarchies, right? And so you have to understand how these two things interact with each other. So some phenomenon um, are going to be, I mean, cultural norms, for instance, can emerge uh, through self-organization, through the swarm mentality, if you want. We, ad we adopt the behavior of other people around us, like fashion, for instance. You see people dress a certain way, and then you can, uh, you adjust and you change your fashion yeah. uh, around time. Uh, so we have this behavior that propagate this these social norms, this political norm that can propagate inside the population. Um, but they can be also controlled from the outside. Um, so for instance, if we talk about fashion, right? Fashion is not completely organic, right? The big companies can push certain fashion trend because they want to be able to sell more clothes. So they will artificially push or accelerate the process of changing fashion or, ch or of the fashion changing so that we can sell more and more product. Uh, the same way uh, on the political spectrum, we can um, make use of uh, social media um, to push uh, some ideas um, that will and that have an influence on polarizing, for instance, uh, the political discourse. And and because you again, tend to agree with your friends. And then if all your friends are, let's say, Democrats, all your friends are Republican, and then you only talk to your friends that are Democrats or only talk to your friends that are Republicans. I'm talking about the US, I guess, uh, maybe not applies to, doesn't apply to Portugal, but you, you end up with these sort of silos where people are only talking to each other and reinforcing their own opinion. But also you can, from the outside, push more and more radical ideas on both sides and so radicalize even more even each block um, and push them away from each other by seeing the other side is evil, right? Uh, and um, and so that's, I, I guess that's the, the, the major challenge, the major challenge for our societies is we, we will, we can't do without this swarm intelligence processes. They exist, they are in the society, they are like part of our soci societal living. Um, but they also can be manipulated for economical gain, for political gain, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, so we can manipulate the way cultural norms are changing and political norms are changing. And the question is going to be how do we, um, I mean, do we realize that this is happening? Are enough people realizing that this is happening? Um, and what do we do as a society to to protect ourselves from uh, from you know that form of collective manipulation and that is a big question because there is not an easy answer to how do we protect society and systems from the injection of information that is pushing people apart or guiding their behavior um, 
in in ways that sometimes don't they feel completely natural to us you see the information you just absorb it and you modify your behavior and you don't necessarily realize at the global scale what it changes at the societal level so i mean there is there is a movement i mean there's been a um, I don't know, I can send you that after if you want. There's been a, a paper about a year ago that is starting to call for, uh, so put together by a bunch of scientists in the field, um, that is trying to call for a, a more systematic study of uh, how social networks in particular, but any form of social transfer of information in human societies, um, how can we make them more ethical in the sense that they will prevent um, this groupthink from happening or, or limit the groupthink from happening where diversity of opinion might be important. Uh, right? When we talk about problems about racial disparities, for instance, or socioeconomical disparities, um, there need to be diversity of opinion in a problem like that because you need to be able to hear the voices of the people that are in the minority uh, and, and may be oppressed by the majority in some cases. So in that in these systems, you want to have a way to make sure all opinions are uh, heard, while not getting rid of the fact that in some cases having the possibility to narrow opinion on the optimal solution is a good thing. Um, so again, like we talk about selecting the best product or best technology, it's a way where it's actually a good thing to be able to come to a consensus or electing, you know, the best leaders for countries it's a place where it's important to uh, to be able to reach consensus um, but how do you balance these two things where in one case this uh this this ability of of everybody getting to a consensus is positive and in other cases is negative how do you make sure you you tune that properly depending on the context is a very uh, important question that we would like to um figure out if we don't want uh, essentially a democracy to uh, to collapse. Uh, I mean, I'm a bit overdramatic, but um, if you have a, if you end up with a country where you only have two options and there's no more possibility to hear the diversity of opinion that are between the two options, well, I mean, you're not that far from a uh, it's not a, it's not a dictatorship yet, but it's uh, it's not that far from it, because you essentially have a just a duopol in terms of uh, in terms of moral and ethical opinions, and that's kind of problematic. Mm -hmm. So, Dr. Garnier, let's end on that note. Uh, just before we go, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Um, Lots of places. I mean, I guess if you type my name on Google, I'm like the first three pages of it. Uh, but otherwise, they can go to our website, which is uh, uh, the swamlab.com, all attached. And then I'm on Twitter as well, uh, SGM, and then my last name, Garnier. Uh, and yeah, these are the two, I guess, website to get information about what we do. And then Twitter is a good place to contact me if, you, uh, if you're interested. Uh, and then otherwise, uh, I mean, you can always send me emails, but I'm not particularly good at responding to my email very quickly, as you know very well. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. 
Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, all of those things you already know. And please consider supporting the show either on PayPal or Patreon. All of the links will be in the description box of the interview starting at $1 per month. So it would be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Kassan, Ivan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dremiti Grigoriev, Diego Lanonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortes, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy and Trader in NYC, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vangnagdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Sardus France, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.